This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We want to go to the book of Isaiah tonight. And we're going to continue a series that we are in in this great prophecy. We'll be in chapter 5. As we finish up what really is the first section of the prophecy, and we're not taking it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but trying to give you an overview that will encourage you to go back to this prophecy yourself and dig deeply, meditate, and let the Lord challenge you through the truth that is here. We're in chapter 5, in this fifth chapter, contains the song of Jehovah's vineyard. We've learned that this is a negative song uh, in that God showed His vineyard, uh, vineyard, Israel, unparalleled favor. And if you have a handout, everyone should have that. You'll see that that's your first blank to fill in tonight. The Lord says, what more could I have done for my vineyard? Yet Israel brought forth wild grapes, verses 3 and 4. God had purposed to destroy his vineyard for rejecting his care and favor. Uh, this could seem harsh to the human mind, unless we understand God's summary of the offenses. And again, look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression and righteousness, but behold, a cry. All right, the Lord looked for justice. That's his character. That's what he expects from his people. But instead, oppression, that's the word for bloodshed. Okay? Righteousness, but instead, he tasted, and of course it's all figurative here, but, but he tasted the cries of those who were being oppressed. And the word cry there speaks of distress, great distress that was happening in the nation. And I would just pause for a moment uh, to remind us that the one writing this prophecy is one of God's servants who is going to be severely persecuted and eventually put to death. Uh, because he ministered in a time when God was trying to warn a nation. He uses this faithful servant uh, to do it, but his message was not received. So we need to see from this text, beginning in verse 8, specifically what actions made up the wild grapes that made God respond with judgment. Now, as an overview again, we said that some have called this the fifth gospel because there is just so much in here about redemption, sin, and then man's need to turn to the Messiah. Uh, there are many uh, messianic references, and we're going to look at those later in our overview of this book. Some have also compared Isaiah to the book of Romans. If you had to put a title on Romans... You've heard me say this. It really is a theology of our salvation. It's the explanation of soteriology. But many of the elements 
in the book of Romans are also found here in Isaiah. Uh, to a greater extent, as far as just volume of material, does Romans talk about sin, yes or no? Sure does. Half of Isaiah does too. Does Romans refer to judgment? Of course. That again is a major theme in Isaiah. But does Romans say anything about salvation? And when we, when we study all the books in the Old Testament, all the prophecies, more material is dedicated to our Savior and His suffering, the suffering Lamb. Uh, Isaiah 53, you, many of you can quote portions of that, of that chapter. And it's through His stripes that we are healed. The only thing is, the Jews certainly in Isaiah's day understood what stripes were, but they had no clue about Roman crucifixion. And let me just mention quickly, if you go back to this past Sunday's Adult Bible Fellowship lesson, uh, Pastor Long did a great job with that lesson, um, helping us understand uh, the nuances of of what those in the Old Testament understood when it came to salvation, redemption. Uh, but one of the books that if you study what Isaiah says about a suffering sacrifice and substitute, uh, you begin to understand that there was a lot available to the children of Israel uh, at, at the end of the monarch period especially that pointed to redemption and the Messiah suffering on behalf of Israel and, and the rest of the world. And so again, just a great, a great book. But in this chapter, we're looking at, and this is our title, The Wild Fruit of God's Worthless Vineyard. All right, The Wild Fruit. What, when God said, I, I look for good grapes and I, and I received wild, wild grapes. What specifically was he referring to? And do you know chapter 5 tells us exactly what that is? So let's look at it. God begins his description of each wild fruit with this word. And you may want to go through chapter 5 and just underline it. But it's this word, woe. So look at verse 8. Woe unto them that, and then he's going to describe that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Read on. In mine ears, said the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without habitation. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an omer yield an ephah. All right, so what, is, what are the wild grapes? What's the wild fruit? Well, first of all, there's the wild fruit of materialism. Materialism. Verse 8 is a reference to the fact that God had given every tribe and family their portion of the land. And you'll remember that if they had to sell their land to repay a debt, uh, that it was returned to them at the year of Jubilee. The American Tract Society put out a, a, a good dictionary that, that just gives practical help, especially to new believers. But it's interesting uh, what they say about, about this particular uh, thing. They said this law 
was mercifully designed to prevent the rich from oppressing the poor and getting possessions of all the lands by purchase or mortgage. So what was happening in Isaiah's day is that wealthy people were buying up land. They were moving the ancient landmarks that divided the property lines going all the way back to Joshua. They were removing those and they were dislodging the poor. So when Jubilee came around and these people were supposed to get their land back, couldn't tell where it was. Now like many today, they wanted a large tract of land. There's nothing wrong. If you have acres, it's okay. But they wanted that so that they could enjoy abundance by themselves without thought of others. Now here's the point. God put us here to need others and to serve others, right? But they just wanted to isolate themselves, be alone, enjoy the good life, and not be bothered by people. We have an example of this with Naboth's vineyard. Remember Ahab, what he did to Naboth? But really what's happening in Isaiah's time was Naboth's vineyard, but on a national scale. In verses 9 and 10, God would ensure that their punishment was along the same lines as their offenses. Just as God had not received any good fruit from them, they would not receive good from their land. And so you have some specific measurements mentioned, and I'll just break it down for you. In modern measures, they were going to receive about one gallon of grape juice per acre. That's not very good. About 10% of what is sowed by the soil, and some Bible teachers point out here that, uh, and I think rightly so, that what God was also going to get was his tithe back. All right, so you're taking all this for yourself. You're not giving to the Lord what he requires. You're certainly not ministering to others and so God says, all right, I will settle this. I will make things just once again. Now later on as you read in Isaiah, and you can read in some of the other prophecies that God also said this, I'm going to send you into captivity in Babylon for how long? 70 years. 70 years. And what was that supposed to accomplish? Well, among other things... God was going to get his Sabbaths back. <laughs> All right? You're, you're going to be in a place where you have to observe the Sabbath. You've disregarded it for this long. God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to make this right. And so this is the wild, worthless fruit of a greedy materialism. Fruit number one. Let's go on. Well, let me make just one more application here. Though this was written to Israel, God responds the same way to believers who hoard material wealth, who oppress others in seeking wealth. Do you know that you can oppress your own families by seeking wealth for yourself? Attaining wealth in unrighteous ways or are disobedient in the distribution of wealth. It's okay if you spend 
that on your own needs. And by the way, we need time away. We need time to be able to clear our minds, enjoy a vacation, and so on. That, not, nothing wrong with that. However, when it is all about your material things meeting your needs, and that is the primary focus of your life, what you're doing is reminiscent of what Isaiah, God spoke to Israel about through Isaiah. We want to be careful. So besides the wild fruit of materialism, living for things, there is a second woe, and that's the wild fruit of self-indulgence. The wild fruit of self-indulgence. Look at verse 11. Woe to them that rise up early in the morning, uh, that they may follow strong drink and continue until night, till wine inflame them, and the harp, and the vial, the tabret, the pipe. Wine, again mentioned, are in their feasts, but they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of His hands. All right, so this is not just a reference to people being drunk. Obviously, that's wrong. It's a problem. God is addressing the fact that Israel had turned his blessing into all-day partying. Sure, they did stop, no doubt made money to be able to spend so they could continue their good times, but, but it was about good times, vacations, and indulgence in pleasure. Now, does this sound like the excesses of our American culture? What do you think? The worst part of this self-indulgence is its threat, okay, fill in that blank, its threat to spiritual life for the saved and the lost. And I mention here Mark 4.19 because the scripture does teach us, right, that the cares of this world, the things of this world choke out spiritual life. And so we find time for video games, sports, shopping, pleasure, hobbies, collecting. But how does that time compare with our time for God? How does it compare? Uh, is this really an issue in God's mind? Well, of course it is. Look at the end of verse 12. They regard not the work of the Lord. They're focused on their works and their things. They don't regard the work of the Lord neither consider the operation of his hands. In other words, why God is doing what he is doing in my life. And, and if you want a great passage that goes against this whole wealth prosperity gospel, just follow God and you're going to be rich. And Isaiah confronts that directly. All right? And, uh, and, and this, this text helps us to understand that. Take a moment and just go over to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 4. Something again that, that the New Testament, Paul addresses this with Timothy. 2 Timothy, uh, again, chapter 3. Notice verse 4. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of what? Pleasures more than lovers of God. See, he's the one with whom we have to do. And I can do without some things, but I can't do without God. 
right? And so the wild fruit of self-indulgence. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruit of our labors, but in the end, but is the end of our toil primarily about pleasure or about eternal benefit? And the, the question is, there's an obvious answer. Pleasure will not satisfy the soul. Verse 13, Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Now wait a minute. Isaiah was just talking about the fact that these people drink and feast all day. How can verse 13 be? Well, if you live for that, it's going to go away. But if you have all of that, it still can't satisfy your soul. Only God can. People who are ignorant of God's ways end up in captivity. And the consequences are eternal. Verse 14, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory and their multitude, their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. Makes me think of the passage, What shall a profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose what? His soul. His soul. If you could own the world and go to hell, None of that profited you at all. Hell enlarges itself for nations that enlarge themselves to consume God's blessing without any regard for God. Psalm 9, verse 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell and the nations that forget God. All right. So God would judge Israel for the wild fruit of materialism, self-indulgence, and then we have time for one more. And we'll finish this up next time. A third wild fruit that God's vineyard was producing. And that's the wild fruit of self-deception. Self-deception. Look at verse 18. Woe. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. That say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Now let me just comment here that one of Isaiah's favorite terms, and it's really not Isaiah's, it's the Lord's term about himself that you'll see all the way through this prophecy. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is not just the one who happens to be the national God. I mean, all these nations have national gods. Not that at all. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is God of gods, Lord of lords. And yet, even though they know that, what's their response? Well, boiling this down, yeah, He's God, but He must not be too concerned. Look at we can party all day, we can drink, we can feast, nothing's happening. Isaiah, we hear what you're saying, but... And so it's the wild fruit of self-deception. Let's take a closer look. The imagery here is of a cart flowing, overflowing so that it can't be pulled or a man with such a burden on his back that he can't move forward. 
That's the imagery in the passage, the picture being the weight of sin, the weight of guilt. And yet, Israel's response in verse 19 is essentially this. If what I am doing is so bad, why doesn't God say anything about it? Now, you and I scratch our heads at this point. If you want to scratch your head, go ahead, okay? It's... What is Isaiah saying? What has he been prophesying? What have other prophets been prophesying? And you have the audacity to say, well, God hasn't spoken. All right. And, and you can come to no other conclusion except that these people are self-deceived. Self-deceived. Look at this last question in your notes. If he doesn't like it, let him show me. Please don't ever say that to God. Here's the application. Is God grieved by our materialistic, self-indulgent society? Oh, he was grieved with it in Israel. Do you think he's grieved with it here in our land or in Europe? Of course. Is he showing us his displeasure with our national sins? What do you think? We get numb to the news, don't we? In fact, some of you have told me, and I don't blame you. Pastor, I just don't watch it anymore. <laughs> but if you watch it rarely, you know what you're seeing? State after state after state, it's not just people setting things on fire. It's on fire. There are fires everywhere. And in case you haven't noticed, there's flooding everywhere. We're having trouble. But how are we explaining it? Very few voices are saying, look, we're not seeing it because we're self-deceived. God is trying to get our attention. And I would encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ, tell your neighbors that. Look, God loves us. He's trying to draw us to repentance. But our nation is in trouble, and look what God is allowing to happen, and, and perhaps it is God's very hand doing what? Burning up what we thought was so precious. Okay. But we're self-deceived. Yes, God is grieved. Only the self-deceived would say that God is not offended. We must also not misinterpret God's mercy and God's patience with us. You say, well, I go home every night to a nice house and a refrigerator that's full and my paycheck keeps coming in the mail. God's goodness, right? God's blessing. But don't look at that and, well, the economy seems to be coming back. Don't interpret any of that that God is dismissing our national sin. Is God merciful and patient? Yes. Yeah. So notice the next blank in your notes. You know, Isaiah prophesied it was 150 years later that Babylon sacked Jerusalem. Well, God must not have been paying attention. Oh, he was paying attention, but he was, he was being long-suffering and merciful. Isaiah had prophesied, and God 
kept his word. He always does. All right, next time we're together, we're going to look at the last two of the wild fruits. I'm sorry, the last three that are here. We'll look at those last three. You can go ahead, uh, read ahead in Isaiah 5, uh, see if you can determine what those other wild fruits are. Let's stand together. Let me just encourage you, this is not meant, this message, to discourage us. But it's meant to help us be prayerful. We are going to escape the wrath to come. But those who are around us, God's trying to get their attention. Let's be used of God to help them see reality. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.